Okay, Boker Tov, good morning. Another glorious day outside. We've got to build an area, some chairs to sit outside through the winter, sheer, sheer outside in the park, Parsha in the park. It's too beautiful outside to be inside. Okay, I said that from behalf of the people listening in New York so that they still can move down. All right, we have the privilege of the Shabbos of studying, of uh, hearing, of learning Parsha's Chaye Sara. It's hard to believe we're already plowing through Sefer Bracious, well on our way, making it through. And our Parsha begins, of course, with the uh, news of the death, the passing of Sarah Imenu. Ayu Chaye Sarah Mea Bashanav Es from Shonav Eshev Shonim, 127 years communicated in that unusual fashion to tell us again about her near perfection or completion at each of these stages. Shnei Chayi Sarah, these are the lives of Sarah. Sarah dies in Kiryat Arba and Avraham is now tasked with the difficult uh, challenge of securing a burial plot, not only for his wife, but designating a burial plot which will be in perpetuity one of the holy sites of the Jewish people, Chevron Ma'asamachpela. The Shabbos is Parshas Chayi Sarah in Chevron. They get thousands of people who come to spend Shabbos in Hebron, Maras Pela, with everything going down and is going on in Israel. It's uh, perhaps even more important this year than ever to show uh, what places are ours and our connection and our appreciation of those uh, of those holy sites. Parsha begins with the death of Sarah, and most Mephorshim understand that this is the tenth and final test of Avram Avinu. We st- we talked about last Shabbos morning in the Drasha. The Mishnah in Navos that tells us Avram was tested ten times and he withstood, he surpassed all of those tests to communicate his affection, his love for the Ribbonu Shalolam. That even though the Akedah is the only one that's prefaced with the words that God tested Avram, but really he endured ten tests. We spoke about the Moray uh, Naim the Chernobyl Rebbe of Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl, who says that every one of us has ten distinct points of our life, ten crises, which really are opportunities, and that if we embrace them, we can grow from them. So most unfortunately understand that Sarah's death was Avram's tenth test. How was it Avram's tenth test? People die. It's the nature of the world. It's inevitable. Death is inevitable. So is it a test every time you lose somebody? To a certain extent, yes. Not to grieve excessively, not to grieve too little, to be able to grieve properly. But what does it mean it was a test that Sarah died? So what did it say on Sarah's death certificate? What was her cause of death? Anyone know? It was not cancer. It was not stroke. It was not old age. You know what it said on her death certificate? Scared to death. You know that expression, scared to death? Sarah Imenu was literally scared to death. Medrash fills us in. What happens? Bless you. She heard that Avram took her son, her only son, to the top of the mountain. That he raised the hatchet, the knife. And immediately her soul left her. She didn't hear the end. That the Malach said, never mind, put it down. Medrash says, actually, we learned from here the proper way to deliver news. First you tell somebody, I want you to know, I have to do this with my mom. Everything is okay. But listen to this crazy story. Your granddaughter banged her head. She needed three stitches. But you have to start by saying, everything's okay. There's nothing to worry about. Everything worked out fine. Everyone is fine. But now listen to this crazy story. So the one who informed Sarah what happened with Akedah's Yitzchak did not say, Yitzchak's fine. Avram's fine. Everyone's fine. But listen to what almost happened. They said... Avram took Yitzchak, they walked three days, they climbed the top of the mountain, Avram laid Yitzchak down on the altar, he built a fire, he raised his knife. She died. She died. So the Medrash says the cause of death. So imagine a test for Avram, a 
tenth test for Avraham is not to have regret. Is not to have regret for having listened to Hashem. Yes, he listened to what Hashem asked him to do when he thought there would be no consequence. I mean, he thought there would be a great consequence for Yitzchak. But then the story had a happy ending. Or so he thought. Until he descends, meets up with Sarah, or wants to, anticipates meeting up with Sarah, and finds out that she expired, she died as a result of his actions. The Slanim Rebbe of Shalom Nach Brzovsky says, you know, we say every night Marv, the Haser Satan Milfanenu, we ask Hashem to remove the Yitzhahara from before us, in front of us, and behind us. Ask the Slanim Rebbe as Nesiva Shalom. I understand, remove the Yitzhahara from in front of me. Hashem, later today, I'm getting together from Mahjan, I'm having a drink with friends, I'm going to be tempted to say, look, good Lashonara, I've got some good juicy stuff from the recent HOA meeting, from the recent Shul board meeting, from the recent whatever, I've got some good juicy stuff. Hasar Satan Milfaneinu, Hashem, take away the Yitzhahara from in front of me later today. But what does it mean, Me'acharenu? Remove the Yitzhahara from behind me? What does that mean? Says the Slana Marebi, you know what it means? Remove the Yitzhahara from behind me means, have me not remove the Yitzhahara for me to have regret for things that I've done. Maybe I thought I did something right, I thought I did something noble, but then I'm going to regret it. I gave a lot of staka, and then I found that all of a sudden I could have used that money, so now I'm going to regret having given them the staka. I did a chesed, and it turns out that that person... So now I'm going to regret having done the chesed. There's sometimes a Yitzhahara to have regret for the good things we've done. Avram's tenth test, according to most Rishonim, is that he may have had regret when he finds out the consequence for his beloved Sarah, he may have regretted what he did with the Akedah. We ask Hashem, remove the Satan both from in front of me and remove the temptation to have regret from behind me for things I may have done. Rabbeinu Yonah, Rabbeinu Yonah, one of the Rishonim, one of the medieval commentaries in the... Uh, he wrote the famous Shari Tshuva, it's a commentary in the back of Brachos. So Rabbeinu Yonah writes, that's not the tenth test. That's not the tenth test. You know what the tenth test is? That's part of the test of the Akedah, says Rabbeinu Yonah. You know what the tenth test is? His negotiation with Ephron. Ephron is a difficult, duplicitous, disingenuous character. Avram presents himself humbly. Avram presents himself generously, graciously, and he says, even though I really own this land, Hashem has given me everything. But tell me the cost, tell me the price. I'm not haggling, I'm not negotiating. Kesaf Malay, I'll pay the whole thing. And Ephron becomes a character. Now, do you think Avram had the patience to deal with Ephron? I know many people, they lose a loved one, and unfortunately in Florida, the funeral industry, industry is challenging. It's not like up north, where in many cases the traditional Jewish community is deeply connected with the funeral industry and there's a little bit more chain, a little bit more warmth. Funeral industry is rough down here. So a lot of people lose a loved one and they come in and they're emotionally fragile and a wreck and then they got to deal with signing papers, paying the money, uh, they're looking through what's this cost, I didn't know about this cost, what's that cost? That's a huge nisayon, that's a huge test. You're vulnerable, you're fragile, you're in incredible pain, you're in acute pain. And to have the patience to stay cool, calm and collect, to not lose it, to not yell, scream, to not haggle, to not create a chil Hashem, says Rabbeinu Yonah, that was the 10th test. The 10th test was the way Avram conducted himself in a business setting. And as with the first nine tests of his life, Avram passed that one as well. So the question is, what exactly is the 10th test? The Mishnah Novos tells us there's 10, but it doesn't tell us which of the 10 are. And the Torah doesn't use the word Nisa test 10 times. It leaves open the room for the Mepharshim 
to try to look, examine Avram's life, both in the Torah Shabbat Chsav and Torah Shabbat Peh, and identify what are these ten tests, and the ten tests, and that leaves open this debate, what is the tenth test? So Avram has this uh, interesting negotiation with Ephron. In it, he says those important words, Ger when Ephron says, basically, the people of Chais say, who are you? What's your story? So how does Avram introduce himself? We've spoken about this often. I wrote about it a couple weeks ago, about Halloween, when Halloween fell on Friday night Shabbos, whether Jews should celebrate Halloween. I said it was another one of our tests in this balance that we're supposed to strike. Avram said these words, You know who I am? I'm a ger. I'm a stranger to you. I'm alien. I have very little in common. I'm a foreigner. And at the same time, Toshav. I'm a resident. I'm a citizen. I'm one of you. Avram, with those words, really characterized the Jewish tension and struggle for eternity. Which is, on the one hand, we're part of society. We contribute to society. We participate in society. In America, we participate in the election process. We spoke about Reb Moshe's tshuva and so on. We're part of society. We're friendly. We're cordial. We develop friendships. We participate. We contribute. And yet, at the same time, Ger, I'm a stranger. My, my, my values, my vision for life, my hashkafa sachayim comes from the Torah, not from pop culture. And we've said in the past that for most of Jewish history, the imbalance between Ger Toshav was off, with an emphasis on being Gerim, because that's what the world told us. As much as we tried to be Toshavim, as much as the Jew who was living in foreign lands under foreign uh, governments tried to fit in, those governments said, no, you're a stranger, you're different. You have to live in a ghetto, persecuted, oppressed, obviously culminating in the Holocaust, despite the enlightenment, despite the effort to integrate, despite the effort to say we're just like you, we're not different at all. For most of our history, we've been reminded that we are gay and we're different even when we try to be the same. Now, the United States of America, which is the most blessed place on earth outside of Israel that we've ever lived in our history, poses the exact opposite problem. Now, the United States, the great melting pot, invites us to assimilate and says, you can be just like us. There's nothing different about you. Be just like us. So now our challenge is in the opposite direction to remember sometimes that we're different. Yes, we're in society. Yes, we contribute. Yes, we participate. Yes, there's so much to glean from culture, not pop culture, from culture and from the world and from civilization. But we at the same time have to remember that we as observant Torah Jews, that we're different that we're driven, that we're informed, that we're inspired by, by differences. We have to remember that. So that all comes from an insight of the Rav on these words, that Avraham captured in perpetuity the tension that is inherent in Jewish life, ger v'toshav, at the same time. Okay, so he negotiates with, finish this overview, so we can get to our psukim. Avraham was old, the Torah tells us, Avraham zakein babayamim, Hashem beirachas Avraham bakol. God blessed Avram, Bakol. We studied this together in the past. What is this Bakol? On the one hand, he had everything. He had wealth, longevity, he had continuity, he had everything. Some understand that Bakol is the same as uh, the Rashi quotes, that it's Gematria of Ben. Avram was worried that without his son having a mate, without having real continuity, what would his life, what would his life be worth? So Avram sends Eliezer, we know the story. Eliezer's faithful servant, Avram sends Eliezer out onto this mission. There's an amazing insight 
Rav Yanka Legalinsky, I've come across his farm recently, he has a set of farm called Vihigarita. Rav Yanka Legalinsky is a Rav in Bnei Brak. He was from, survived Siberia from Russia. He's a great Tamachacham in Bnei Brak, a very interesting person who tells incredible stories and has great insights in his uh, set of farm in, uh, in Vihigarita. He says something incredible about Eliezer. He says, you know, Avram's ready to send Eliezer out on this, on this uh, mission. When did we last hear about Eliezer? When he took him up to the, for the Akedah. We last heard about Eliezer with the Akedah, correct. Uh, the Eliezer was one of the people who went with Avram on the Akedah. And how is Eliezer described in the section of the Akedah? He doesn't make it all the way up the mountain, right? What happens with Eliezer? He says... You stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad, I and the Na'ar, Yitzchak, are going to go. Which the Gemara learns, Am Hadom El which we'll leave aside another time. He's telling Yishmael El Yezer, Am Hadom El but okay, leave that aside. So, says Rav Yanka Legolinsky, it's an unbelievable thing. Last we heard of Eliezer, he's compared to a donkey. Now he's compared, he's described by the Torah as Avram's faithful servant. El Avdo Zakan Beso Hamoshel Bekola Shelo. Avram turns to Zakan Beso, his the elder of his household, Hamoshel Bakol, who's in charge of everything that Avraham has. And he gives him the most important task in Avram's life. And points out Rav Yanka Legolinsky, what happened? What happened here? You know what happened? In a very, very, very short period of time, Eliezer transformed his life. And you can learn from here in how little time a person can turn around their life. That he goes from being this someone Avraham rejects and compares to a chamor to somebody Avraham embraces and trusts with everything. And uh, I forgot exactly, Rav Yanko Galinsky, that's what I'm flipping through here looking for it. Uh, here it is. He quotes this insight from Rav Ochanan Wasserman. Um... Sorry, sorry, sorry. One second. Okay, whatever. It's a very short period of time. I forgot exactly how much he proves uh, how short a period of time it is. And yet, look how look how Avraham, uh, look how Eliezer turns his life around. It's an incredible insight of the ability to transform your reputation, to transform the trust people have in you, to transform who you are in such a short period. Yes, Alex. No, Yitzchak is called the Nahar. Eliezer? Correct, right, true, true, that he was young. Although Yitzchak is called the Nahar, he's 37 years old. So is a Nahar in contrast to the father? Is a Nahar, how do you define exactly a Nahar? Okay, so Eliezer defines, yes. Uh, front, right, but he didn't mean it. Correct. Exactly. It's one of our holy sites like Harabayas that we paid for so that no one could ever challenge us that it doesn't really belong to you. But Ephron was disingenuous. 
he was echa bepev echad believe. He said with his mouth, Avram, take it. It's yours. It's, you. He didn't mean it. And Avram understood that. And the Gemara learns from here, Sonei Matanos Yechia, based on a Pasuk. Sonei Matanos Yechia, that a person who hates gifts will live a long life. Meaning, don't be indebted to people. Don't run to get gifts. There are certain people who love to get freebies. And there are other people who are very hesitant to ever accept a gift. You love to get freebies, you're going to live your life indebted, you're going to live your life, be a certain independent. Sonei Matanos Yechia, Avram understood that and insists on paying Ephron despite what Ephron says. So Eliezer creates this criteria, he understands that to enter Avram's household, this uh, woman who's going to marry Yitzchak has to excel in chesed. She has to be a balas chesed, she has to intuit kindness. And that's the criteria he sets up. And uh, Rivka, of course, passes the test, brings Eliezer home. Eliezer enters this conversation with Besuel, Rivka's father, and with Lavan, who prominently is advocating for um, Rivka. He had his own interests because he saw the wealth dripping off of Eliezer, and he saw cha-ching, these dollar signs, which was all that Lavan saw in life. So he too pursues this this uh, relationship. And uh, then we have Rivka agreeing to go and uh, to marry Yitzchak. Eliezer takes Rivka back to Yitzchak. And then our parsha ends with Avraham remarrying. Who do, whom does he remarry? Torah calls her Keturah. But Keturah, our tradition teaches, at least one of our tradition teaches, Keturah is Hagar. And uh, he remarries Hagar after she had been when Sarah, remember Sarah insisted that Avram expel uh, Yishmael from the home. He was a bad influence. And Sarah's died, and Avram remarries uh, Hagar. And then the end of the parsha is the chronology, the chronology, the genealogy of Esav. Okay, what I want to study together in depth today, let's look at the psukim that comprise the Aliyah of Hamishi, which is uh, page 118 in the Earth Scroll Stone Chumash. Perak Chavdalat Pasuk Nun Gimel, chapter 24, verse 53. 2453. And here we're in the middle of the conversation between the middle of the courtship where Eliezer representing Yitzchak is courting Rivka. Okay. I didn't mean that. Here. What happens here? Uh, who's the Eved? Eliezer is the faithful servant. Takes silver and gold and clothing and he gives it to Rivka and he gives other, uh, other wealth to her brother and to her mother. Who's noticeably absent? He gives delicacies and fruit to the brother and the mother. Who's noticeably absent? Father. father. What happened to the father? Where's Besuel? What happened to the father? So Rashi asked that question. Ubesuel hechanaya. Right again, as we've said countless times, the Mephorshim were sensitive to the text. They didn't just read and take for granted. They read and asked questions. Grammatical questions, syntax questions, omissions, extra information. So Rashi's bothered. Besuah hechanaya. Quotes the Medrash. The answer is Hayarotzul Akev Uba Malach Vehemiso. Besuah was a Ramai. 
He was a uh, deceptive. He was deceptive, and his plan was to agree to accept the wealth, to accept the gifts, and then to delay and delay and delay until he kept Rivka home and never she would never go. So the Malach intervened when Besuel tried to prove, tried to uh, practice his deception. And what happened to Besuel? Gone. He dies. That's Rashi quotes the Medrash. The Ibn Ezra has a different approach. He's also bothered by the same question. They accept the gifts, the Pasuk testifies, and the father, Besuel, is silent. Where is he? The Pasuk doesn't mention him. So says the Ibn Ezra, Says the Ibn Ezra, why are you asking that question now? You could have asked the question earlier. Because when Eliezer is negotiating or conversing about uh, representing Yitzchak's interests in marrying Rivka, what does the Pasuk say? Vayan, who answers? Lavan ubesuel, the son and the father. Shouldn't it be the father and the son? Says the Ibn Ezra, what do you see? That Lavan was greater than his father. He was smarter, he was shrewder, he was more articulate. Whatever the case. So the Ibn Ezra does not necessarily buy into, or he's saying on the Pashup Shat without the Medrash, that Pesuel hadn't died, but it's consistent with the whole section that Lavan is the assertive one, and Lavan is in whatever way greater, Bechachma, Bekavod, than, uh, than his father, than Besuel. He's more accomplished or he's brighter. And therefore, Lavan is the one taking charge. And that's why Besuel is, is silent. Pasuk Nadalat. They eat, they drink. The men with him. And they stay over. They wake up in the morning. And Vayomer, who's speaking? Eliezer says, It's time to go. Send me back to my master. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to go home. Again, the brother and the mother are speaking. No, let her stay here for another uh, period of time, for another year, or asor, eser, for another ten months. And after the year of the ten months, then she'll go. Then she'll go. Why stay longer? Rashi tells us, Yamim is shana is a year. Kemo yamim tiye gulaso. Shekach nosn lebsulas man yud beis chodesh lefarnes is atzim betachshitin. Because the practice in antiquity was that women were given from the period of engagement a year until they got married. This would never fly in firm circles today. A year so that they could spend a year getting ready. Getting ready betachshitin could mean to bedeck and bejewel and beautify themselves. Literally, it could mean to transition themselves from their father's home. Learn to cook, learn to do laundry, get ready to go, prepare. But they had a whole year. At least minimally, they said, give us 10 months, if not the full year. If not the full year, give us the 10 months. The Svarno adds, Yamim o asor, Shetis yashev, Daita ba'adragal alechas al-eretz acheres, V'lo yezele pitom, Ki ishtanus ha-pitomi, Lo yezbalehu ha-teva. This is so sudden. Argue Rivka's mother and brother. This is so sudden, so abrupt. You showed up at a well yesterday and now you want to take her away to another land. It's not like she's going to get married and live down the block. You're taking her to another land, another country, another culture. It just happened. This is all so sudden. This is all so abrupt. Give us time. Give us a year. Give us ten months. It's only Derech Eretz. Give us time. Don't 
says Eliezer back to them, to whom? To Lavan and to Mrs. Bisuel. No, don't delay us. Let us go. It's time to, uh, it's time to go. Because Hashem has made my journey successful. Meaning, Hashem has filled my prayer. I found the right one. Send me, and I'll go back to Adoni. Let me go back to Avram. So, Lavan and the mother say, You know what? You want to go right now. We say you should stay a year. Let's go ask her. Let's go ask her. What do you see from here? Says Rashi. Let's go ask her. The parents and the in-laws shouldn't get over-involved. You don't let a girl get married. You have to ask her what she wants. What does she want? You learn from here, very important. I think that there's, you know, we learn a lot about Shiduchim from this story. This is the, this is the center, um, central source to talk about the Jewish view of Shiduchim and of marriage. Eliezer, Yitzchak, Rivka, and so on. And this is one of the lessons that you learn, is that you shouldn't have over-involvement. Let the girl, don't, don't, what do they want? Oh, how old was she? How old was she? So, we'll get to that, we'll get back to that in one moment. We'll get back to that in one moment. What does it suggest? The fact that it says, Vinishila, Pia, what does it suggest about how old she is? Let me rephrase that. What does it suggest she's not? She's not Three years old. They called to Rivka and they said, Do you want to go with this man? And she said, unequivocally, I want to go. So they sent Rivka, the sister, the daughter. What is Meinikta? Her nursemaid. And the servant of Avram Eliezer and the men that were with him. What does Meiniktav suggest? Meiniktav suggests that she is three. Why do you have a Meinekes? Why do you need a babysitter? They sent Eliezer with Rivka and with Rivka's babysitter. Babysitter? She's getting married. What does she have a babysitter for? So the simple understanding is, the simple understanding is Meinikta means she has a babysitter. The Ibn Ezra understands differently. Says the Ibn Ezra, Bayamim akadmonim. In the early days, a young lady had a, someone appointed to them, who mentored them, who raised them. And it wasn't that she was three, she could be 15 years old, and she still had this mentor, she still had this woman who was her mentor went with her. I think that this is a very important uh, point. You know, there is a medrash that says that Rivka was three years old when she married Yitzhak. There certainly is a medrash. But you know, there's also other medrash that say she was older. So why is it that the medrash that said she was three became the authoritative medrash that that's what we teach children in school? Because I would argue that it's not only neutral to teach them that they're three, it's harmful. I'll tell you a true story. I wrote about this in the past, but I didn't mention who it was. But I'll tell you who it was. It was my daughter. We got a call from school a few years ago. My daughter must have been at the time seven years old. She goes to a wonderful school and wonderful teachers. I'm not saying anything negative. This is true, I think, across way too many Jewish day schools. They teach medrash as if it is the authoritative singular opinion in a generation now that it, it's, it's damaging, it's destructive. We got a, to- a call that my daughter was tuning out in class that day. She was doodling, she got in trouble. 
So I sat my daughter down and said, what's going on? Why, why are we uh, doodling? Why are we tuning out? That the t- teacher noticed and called us. So she started crying. I said, what's the matter? She said, my teacher said that Rivka was three years old when she married Yitzchak. And that makes no sense. So when my teacher starts saying things that make no sense, I start doodling. I stop listening. Because why should I listen to somebody who's saying something that makes no sense? So if you could be very worried about your child and have great nachas from your child at the same moment, that's what I had. (laughs) Very great fear, but great nachas at the very same moment. And again, I want to be clear, it's not a function of her teacher or school. They're both outstanding and wonderful. I think that there's many... Um, Jewish schools maybe for periods of Jewish history you taught that that Rivka was three years old and everyone said oh that's cute that's nice she was three years old and they blindly accepted that but we live in a generation of critical thinkers and we live in a generation who think critically and if the answers are not compelling if to quote a seven year old it doesn't make sense if you say things that don't make sense they're going to tune out so at seven you just tune out and doodle a class but you become a teenager you you tune out from Shabbos and kashras, and tefillin, and davening. So, when there's a machlokas in the medrash, whether Rivka was three or whether Rivka was older, we do a much greater service to our children and frankly to ourselves if we embrace the medrash which is more consistent with our ability to understand. Without feeling we're being disloyal to the other medrash. We have to understand the text never tells us she's three years old. It's a medrash. And... And, and just like throughout Medrash, when you study Medrash, there are competing Midrashim, and you're not obligated to accept one over another. So, so too here, you're not being disloyal, you're not being heretical, if you are not running to embrace and defend that she's three years old, or that Vashti had a tail, or that uh, whatever else the case may be. We have to communicate Medrash in a way which is appealing, in a way which is comprehensible to our children, because if not, they'll just say, it makes no sense, and tune out. So what is Meinekes? So according to some, that's evidence that she was three. But according to the Ibn Ezra, no. Yamim Akadmonim, this was the Minug. She was a young lady, and a young lady in those days was appointed a mentor, a woman who accompanied her. She didn't go out unsupervised. She didn't go out alone. And that's what Meinekes means in this context. That's the other Medrash. The Rashbam, going back to Pasuk Midches. The Rashbam, we said that they asked Rivka, what do you want? Derech Eretzu they said to Rivka, even though it's clear that Hashem himself endorses the Shidduch, Hashem sent Eliezer, the Shidduch was Bashert, it's Menashamayim. The Almighty himself endorses the Shidduch, but nevertheless, it's Pasha Derecheretz to ask the bride and groom what they want not to get over involved and not to demand of them. Even though the minag was, the assumption was they get 12 months or 10 months, but nevertheless she wanted to go. I'm not worried about beautifying myself. Rivka says, I have to go be the matriarch of the Jewish people. I have to go pursue spirituality. I'm not worried about spending a year shopping buying Sheva, Sheva Bracha's dresses, having Shetel styled, and uh, the, I'm not, I don't need a year for that. I'm good. That's not the Iker. I just want to be married. And I want to be the mother of a, the next generation and the continuity of the Jewish people. And says the Rashbam, like his grandfather Rashi, this is basic Derech Eretz. 
So I think it's not Derecheretz when kids demand the details of the wedding without asking the parents who are paying for it. And it's also not Derecheretz when parents are overly involved without the input of the children who are the chassan and the, and the kala. Rav Yankel Galinsky has another great pshat. He says, you know, we say in Sheva Brachas, what do we say in Sheva Brachas? Under the chuppah, and then for all Sheva Brachas, we say... So that's right before. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, Sameach to Samach Reim Ahuvim, Kisamechacha Yitzircha began Eden Mikedem. We ask Hashem to bring joy and happiness to these beloved friends, these Reim Ahuvim, just as He gave joy, began Eden Mikedem. Who's the Began Eden Mikadam? The original couple. Just as God made the first Shidduch and God brought great joy, who is the first Shidduch? Adam and Chava. So says Rav Yankel Galunsky, Madu Kiloyulam Chosen Vachosena Shis Arvi Abiodeos Yashmiu, because Yafir was a Usher. says, What are we saying to Hashem? Why did, I, why did Adam and Chava have great joy? Why was it marital bliss? Because there were no in laws involved. <laughs> And that's our bracha. The bracha under the chuppah is, may this couple, sorry, in-laws in the room. Everybody's all in-laws. You'll be one too. Someday. Says Rav Yanka Legalinsky, maybe half-jokingly, but he's very serious here. He says, the bracha to the chasen and kala under the chuppah is, that may you find the simcha, beganeidin mikedem is, may you find the joy in one another, despite and no matter who is trying to interfere, despite and no matter who is trying to draw you to their side, despite and no matter what family is getting overly involved, may you like Adam and Chava be as if you are all that you have in the world, without allowing anyone else to interfere. That is a very important bracha. I know engagements that have been broken despite the bride and groom having harmony because of over-involvement of other people. That's the bracha. It's a very powerful bracha. So that's what the Rashbam and Rashi here say. So you know, Chaim Kanievsky has an insight. How do you say son-in-law in Hebrew? Chatan. How do you say daughter-in-law in Hebrew? Kala. This is the Hebrew words. Chaim Kanievsky, Shlita says... Why don't we have a different word, chasan and kala? So he says, you know how you'll get along well with your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law? You remember when they got engaged and they were your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law, they could do no wrong, you loved them, you wanted them to be happy, you put them first, you, you spoke about their, you praised them to everybody. Maintain that relationship as if they just became your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law. See them always as a chasan and kala. When they were engaged and he was the chasan, oh, then, you know, it grew old on you. So then you started complaining about your son-in-law. When they were engaged and she was the, your son's kala, she could do no wrong. So you should maintain the attitude. Says so Rechaim Kanievsky, he should remain the chasen. She should remain the kala years after they're married, and then there'll be harmony. So anyway, coming back, they say, ask Rivka, why? Because that's Derech Heretz. You have to get advice. So Rivka is now going to leave on her way. But what happens first? Pasuk Samach, 60, Vayivarchu es Rivka, Vayomrullah. They give Rivka a bracha and they say to her, and this is the bracha that fathers say at the Badekin. When the father arrives at the Badekin, the chassan whispers whatever he whispers in her ear, and uh, the father leans over, and father-in-law, grandfathers, and this is the text. When I'm a Sadr Kedushan, I hand a little card with this text, 
to the fathers and grandfathers to say this bracha. Achoseinu atayila alfei revava v'yirash zareich is sha'ar son of. What is the bracha? Our sister, our daughter, our family member, they're telling Rivka. May you come to be thousands of myriads and may your offspring inherit the gates of its enemies. What does this bracha mean? May you produce, may you be the mother, may you be the fulfillment of the thousands of myriads. And may your offspring, Zareich, may your seed, may they inherit the gate of its enemies, of its foes. What does this mean? What does this even mean? Says Rashi, The wording in this bracha should be reminiscent, should invoke what the bracha that Avram received at Haramoriah. Avram was told that I will make you great in number and thus will be your offspring. The bracha that that uh, Rivka's family gives her is may this may this bracha be fulfilled through you and not through somebody else. May the bracha be fulfilled through you. Look at the way the Rashbam writes. May these these children, may this continuity, may these sons come through you as the promise was given during the Akedah. And then may you inherit the gateways of your enemies means may you always be triumphant no matter what happens. So it's a beautiful bracha that we give. Essentially what we're giving is may you be the legacy of Avram Avinu. May the bracha God gave to Avram continue through you. May your children stay strong and on the derech may your children embrace the values and the vision of Avram. May you, may through you there be a continuity of the bracha that was given to Avram and may your children, may we all triumph over our enemies. A very, very beautiful bracha. Oh. Yeah, I was actually thinking that as I was saying it right now. Here you have Lavan and his mother, who we know are not the most righteous people giving this bracha. It's kind of uh, ironic. It's kind of ironic. So it must be some level of prophecy, I guess, that Hashem put these words in their mouth. Why would they have an interest in that? Unless it's just, look, once she's going, okay, may you be the chosen one. Once you're going, may you at least be the one who's going to be the, the chosen one. The Balaturim, as is his style, sees in here a gematria. At hayi, hayi is, 5 and 10 and 10 is, begamatria, 25, which is the equivalent of what word? Ko. And what was ko? Ko yezarecha. That's what Hashem said to Avram at the Akedah. Ko yezarecha. Hayi is the same in gematria, the numerical value, as ko. May the fulfillment of ko yezarecha come through you. That's the bracha they gave Rivka, and that's the bracha we give every Jewish girl, or we ought to give every Jewish girl at her wedding. Rivka got up, as well as her Naroseha, and they ride on the camels, and they follow the man. They follow Eliezer. Isn't that gratuitous? We just said that Rivka got up and she followed him. Why does it now say, Isn't that redundant? If Rivka got onto her camel with her maidservants, 
and they follow Eliezer, why do I have to then say, and Eliezer took Rivka and they left? Says the Ibn Ezra, Hu im Rivka, ad bo Yitzchak. What do we know about Eliezer? Eliezer also had eyes on Rivka. For his son. Eliezer also had eyes, has eyes. So maybe that's what the Ibn Ezra here means. Hu im Rivka, ad bo Yitzchak. He was going with, you know, not in my generation, but apparently before you'd say, I'm going with so-and-so, which is a way of saying I'm dating so-and-so. So, they were going together, and, Yitzchak, and Eliezer didn't realize that until Adbo Yitzchak, until they saw Yitzchak, and that interrupted this relationship. So maybe that's what the text means to say. That's what the uh, Ramban quotes as well. Look at the Ramban. Ramban first brings a different interpretation and says that this informs us of Eliezer's alacrity. He was so eager, he was in such a rush to get home to Avram that he was running ahead. Right? It's like my father-in-law, when the whole family goes to Disney, he's always running ahead. Everybody's trying to keep up with him. He's so excited to get on the next ride. So Eliezer is so eager to get back to Avram that he's running ahead. So what does it mean by Kachas Rivka? When they left the city and he realized he was ahead, he waited, he grabbed her, and they went. They went. He was in such, with such zeal, with such alacrity. That's the so the Ramban understands it to be a praise of Eliezer. means with such alacrity and zeal and enthusiasm, he ran ahead with Rivka. Ibn Ezra, perhaps less so. Lo hirgish ad bo Yitzchak. Okay, what happens? Pasuk Samik Beis. Yitzchak bought me bo be'er lachai roi, and now we're going to have this incredible rendezvous, this amazing meeting. Yitzchak is coming from a place called be'er lachai roi. Bahu yoshev be'er tzanegev. He's coming from be'er lachai roi, and he was living in the south. Why is he in be'er lachai roi? What is that reminiscent of? What should that remind you? Be'er l'chai ro'i? Hagar. Why did we last see Hagar in Be'er l'chai ro'i? That's where she was davening. For whom was she davening? Yishmael. Look at the Sforno. Says Rav Avadya Sforno. He went, Yitzchak intuited a need to go daven. He said, where should I go daven if not the very place that we have a tradition that my father's maidservant, Hagar, her tefillah was accepted. And before he even began to daven, his prayer were answered before he even opened his lips. Because his wife was already coming close. She was arriving as he was davening. Please Hashem, let me find the shidduch. His shidduch was walking through the door. That we say in davening, Teram Yikru, before you even call out, God says, I'm already answering you. I'm ahead of the game. And that's what happened for Yitzchak. So why is Yitzchak in Be'er Lachai Ro'i? Because he's going there to daven. Rashi has a different interpretation. Why is Yitzchak in Be'er Lachai Ro'i? He's going to bring Hagar back for his father to marry her. Since we know the very next section is. The story of Keturah that Avram marries again, which our tradition Keturah is Hagar, says Rashi, why did he go to Becher Lairoi, the last place Hagar was known to be? Because he went to get her to bring her back to marry, to remarry his 
father. Okay. Continuing. What happens? Yitzchak goes out. He goes out to be Lasuach. What does Lasuach mean? Rashi Lasuach is Lashon Tfila. Like we say, Yishpoch Sicho. What do we say? Tfila La'ani Kiyatov. How does the Pasuk end? Tfila La'ani Kiyatov. And before Hashem, pour out Sicho. So Siach, you see, is a Lashon of Tefillah. What is Siach? If I'm in Israel today and I have a Sicha with you, what did we just have? A, a conversation, a discussion. This is one of the 13 synonyms for prayer in Tanakh. We're studying on Wednesday mornings after the 745 minyan. We put it up on the website to listen to if you want. 10 minutes of Sha'arim B'Tefillah. Sharon Betfila is Rapinkus' is fantastic safer. He begins by quoting the Alka Shimoni that we have 13 synonyms for prayer. Rina, Bitsur, Tsaka, Zaka, Pilul, Sicha is one of them. 13 synonyms for prayer. And we don't have synonyms in Biblical Hebrew. If there are different words, it's because there's a, at least a nuanced difference. So Rapinkus devotes his safer, Sharon Betfila, every parak is another synonym to explain that difference of that prayer. The prayer in the moment of the greatest joy is different than the prayer in the moment of the greatest sadness. The prayer of anxiety is different than the prayer of relief. The prayer of this is... So we have all kinds of prayer. So he develops the notion of a type of prayer of tefillah called sicha. What is sicha? Conversation. It's a casual conversation. When you're talking to Hashem like He's your best friend in the world. You're having a sicha. Right? In yeshiva, you'd call giving a sicha. What, what you'd say in Yiddish, shmuz, in Hebrew, in, in uh, yeshiva, you'd say a sicha. The Rosh Hashiva gave a sicha. Or if we just had a conversation, I'm on the phone having a sicha, I'm having a conversation. That's a type of prayer. Where do we learn this type of prayer? Yitzchak. Yitzchak went out to the field, lasuach, in order to have a, in order to have a sicha, in order to pray. When did he do it? Lifnos arev, before the sun set, otherwise known as the prayer of mincha. And he lifts his eyes when he's done praying, and halavai for all of us, his prayer is answered the moment he finishes it. Vayar malim bayim, he sees there are camels approaching. Look at the kliyakar. Says the kliyakar. Razal Lamdu, our great rabbis taught in Gemara Brachas Chavav, Sheyitzchak tikin tefilas mincha, shulif nasarav samach larav shemesh. You see from this pasuk, Avram established shachras. Vayashkim Avram baboker. Yitzchak established mincha. Yaakov established Right, the Gemara quotes the Machlokas. Are the Tfilas established after the Karbanos? Or are they established after our Avos? Avos Tiknam? So he quotes the Gemara in Brachos. If you'd ask me which is the most potent, significant prayer of the day, what would you say? I wouldn't have said Mincha. Why wouldn't I have said Mincha? It's the shortest. All I have is an ashray. I basically have the Amida, and I surround the Amida with the bare minimum. We throw in an ashray, we follow up with an Aleinu, and we're done. Basically, Mincha is the Amida, with the minimum bookends around it. Shachras, Birchaz Shachar, Psuke de Zimra, Birchaz Krishma, Ashri Yavalatzion, Marav, Birchaz Shma, Shma, Amida. Mincha? Yeah. But our tradition is that Mincha is actually the loftiest, the most potent, the most powerful 
if you want to penetrate and pierce the curtains of Shemayim with your prayer, Mincha is the, is the tefillah not to miss. Mincha is the most important. Eliyahu lo nenakim b'tefillah's mincha. Eliyahu will be answered with mincha. Says the Kliyakar, how could you say that? It's degrading. How could you say that to Avram and to, and to, uh, and to Yaakov? To disparage Shachras and Arvis. Mincha, Yitzchak is answered immediately. Avram and Yaakov are not answered immediately. So, we're not disparaging Avram and Yaakov, it's just the reality. The text communicates that Yitzchak's tefillah is answered right away, which strongly implies and suggests that it's more powerful. Says the Kliyakar beautifully. Why does Yitzchak go to the field to David? He goes to have this sicha, this casual conversation with Hashem as if he's his best friend. Why does he go? Why the field? Why not into the house? Why not the road? Why the field? Because we've already seen that Hashem blesses Yitzchak that his field produces mea she'arim, a hundred gates, a hundredfold. What is the symbolism of a fruitful field? A seed which is blossoming. And Yitzchak says, Hashem, if you've allowed me to succeed financially, that my field, the seeds planted in my field have blossomed, that I'm able to to see the fruit of my effort in the field, similarly, Hashem, allow me to see the seed of life yield fruit, let me see it blossom as well. That's the imagery why Yitzchak goes to the field according to the Kliyakar. Says the Kliyakar, Says the Kliyakar, you know why Mincha is the strongest, the most potent, the most powerful? Because night is Midas Adin. At night, under the cloak of darkness, is God, whatever this means, but God emphasizes more the character trait of judgment over kindness. So Arvis, night, Marv is at night, Shacharis is at the end of the night, Mincha is the only that's purely daytime, that's the middle of the day, and therefore Mincha is the most powerful. He gives a second reason, Tam Acher, Lefi, Sha'at Shala Shakar, Shimsha Shasara, Zarcha Shimsha Shel Rivka. Hodilano Akasa Shabar Rivka, Samach Lar Shemesh. He gives a second reason about the continuity. But the Mepharshim on the Gemara who quote that Mincha is the most powerful give another reason. You know what they say? At night the day is over. The day is wound down. You have time. You're going to go to sleep. You have the ability to concentrate to Davin Marv. The morning, oh, you wake up with a zest for the day. It's going to be a bright new day. So before you begin your day, you designate time to be hopeful to Davin for that day. But Mincha... As my wife likes to remind me, Mincha is never at a convenient time. Before we change the clock, she says it's at the worst time. 
7 o'clock, uh, the kids, uh, it's the worst time. Then we change the clock, it's at the worst time. Mincha is always at the worst time. It's never at a good time. And yet, the commitment to Davin Mincha. So whether it's the husband who goes to Mincha, or the wife who enables her husband to go to Mincha, or the man who's in the middle of his business day and has to find a way to make sure to Davin Mincha. But Mincha is never at a good time. And even though Mincha is never at a good time, a person's committed to Davin Mincha, that's why, some of say, that's why Mincha is the most powerful prayer. Because one davens it nonetheless, the Fumtsara Agra. It's more difficult, the more challenging it is, the greater the power of that which you overcame to do nonetheless. Nonetheless. Okay, let's finish up. Sefer Daniel is screaming all of your names. Batomer Ella Evet. So now Rivka, I'm sorry, I skipped a Pasak. Batisa Rivka say now, Rivka lifts her eyes, she says Yitzchak. And she Batipol in modern Hebrew would think means she falls, right? That's not a very romantic picture. Right? That wouldn't look so good in the Hollywood movie, right? The sun is setting, Yitzchak's davening, the righteous man, here she comes, the caravan. And all of a sudden, like the music stops, she falls off the, you know, it's like the blooper reel of the, of the scene. So be rest assured, she did not fall off the camel. She's not clumsy and dizzy. She doesn't have vertigo. She didn't fall off the camel. What does Vatipal mean? She turned herself to lower herself to the ground. Says the Ibn Ezra, intentionally she lowers herself to the ground. She didn't fall off. She intentionally lowers herself off. And why does she do that immediately? And why is the Pasuk emphasized? That when she lifts her eyes and she sees Yitzchak, the first thing she does is, she descends, she lowers herself. Why? Says the Rashpam, Vatipo me'ala gamal. What's the magic word? Litznius. Litznius. Ki lefisha haisa rocheves kamo ish mishambius of the gamla kitam fush b'psachem. How do you ride a camel? Your legs are on either side of the camel. And to get your legs on either side of the camel, your skirt has to be hiked up. She felt it was immodest. She's about to meet her soulmate, the person who's going to see her in a state of undress, and she doesn't therefore excuse immodesty. She feels compelled for greater modesty. That within Shiduchim, when she's trying to impress upon Yitzchak who she is, her first instinct is, Vatipol, why? Says the Rashpam, Litznius. Because she is focused on modesty, so therefore she kind of shifts her second leg so she's on the side of the camel and lowers herself so that she does not at all look immodest as she's about to meet her soulmate. Then she says to Eliezer, Who's this man who's coming to greet us? So she takes and she covers herself. And Eliezer greets Yitzchak and fills him in, briefs him on everything that happened. What's the everything that happened? Says Rashi, He tells Yitzchak, you're not going to believe the miracles God did for me, for us. He gave me a kvitsa It took me much shorter than it should have. And he also gave Rivka. Are those equal? I had a smooth flight, and by the way, I found your shidduch. We took off on time, and I also have Yeshirah. Those are two miracles that Eliezer equates. We're out of time. But Yanka Galinsky and Vigarata has a very interesting interpretation of why Eliezer felt compelled to tell Yitzchak at this time. I mean, he's about to meet his Shirach. 
get out of the way. What are you talking and filling him in about the whole trip and the travels and the food and it was kosher food was terrible on the airline. We took off a little late and the Wi-Fi didn't work and that. I'm telling you, and this was a miracle. This did happen. What are you filling him in on this right now? Get out of the way. So what's the shot? Why he has to tell him should come to Loha Aretz? I guess we'll have to tell you another time. Yitzchak takes Sarah into his tent. He takes Rivka as a wife, and he loves her. What's wrong? Sarah's dead, but her tent was unchanged. See that in a moment. The order! It should be Yitzchak loves her, and he marries her. You see an unbelievably important idea of the Jewish view of love. When couples are engaged, they should say, we're in like with one another. They don't begin to know what love is. How could you know what love is until you've had sleepless nights, until you've had challenges, until you've lived life, until you've had the highest highs and the joys and the lowest lows? You don't begin to know what love is until you experience life, until you've given to one another, compromised for one another, sacrificed to one another. You don't begin to know what love is. The Jewish view of love is, you get married, and then you begin to discover love. You like one another enough to get married. You have to like one another enough to get married, but you only begin to love one another after you go through the exercise of marriage, of giving, of compromising, of sacrificing, of living. And only when he has Rivka is he comforted about his mother. Why? So Rashi quotes the famous Medrash that Rivka's merit, Rivka was so righteous that the miracles that existed in the tent of Sarah returned with Rivka's presence. So he was comforted the loss of his mother because now he had. But again, Rav Yanka Galinsky, we don't have time, develops the relationship. You know, we don't talk about it. But think about the special relationship between Yitzchak and his mother. He's the only son to that mother. Rivka davens so hard. Rivka expels his half-brother. That's how much she cares about him. I'm sorry, rather. Sarah expels his half-mother. That's how much she cares about him. So the, 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 this, the love that Sarah's displayed for her Yitzchak and the loyalty Yitzchak feels back and how much he must miss his mother and they'll live with the guilt that his mother died because he was almost killed he only finds comfort when and, and so Rav Yanko suggests that perhaps Yitzchak thought in tribute to his mother he would never marry he was so loyal to his mother how could any other woman replace her and only when he finds Rivka only then does he find comfort it develops again we don't have time all right, everyone is invited and welcome, encouraged to stay safe for Daniel. Next.